BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. Yesterday, Louise was at the, uh, at, the, at the grocery store and she picked up some beer that has CBD in it. They got beer with CBD in it. I mean, it's like the whole world has figured out that CBD is really cool stuff. You know, it's, it's a potent pain reliever and an anti-inflammatory. Um, you know, cannabinoids are apparently good for you. And uh, CBD oil is non-intoxicating. It's great stuff. And that's why I've been using New Leaf Naturals for, for months now. NU Leaf Naturals CBD oil. Uh, it is extraordinary. It's the brand that I trust the most. It's the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic. It's highly concentrated. There's no additional additives. It's grown right here in the USA. And the only ingredient is hemp. So it's in its most pure and simple form. And it's legal. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-Leafnaturals.com, and you can save 30% and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to N-U-Leafnaturals.com, New Leaf Naturals, for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I want to start with the media. I want to start with, with something that Bernie Sanders is doing. And this is really, really dangerous to Bernie. And I find it fascinating that he's just coming out and saying this. Um, you will recall back in 2004, Howard Dean was at the top of the polls. He was running for the nomination that John Kerry ended up with. And he was on Chris Matthews' show. I believe it was 2004. Maybe it was 2000. Whatever year it was. In any case, he was on Chris Matthews' show on MSNBC, Hardball. And they were doing some kind of a town hall thing. And Louise and I were sitting there watching it. And Howard Dean says, we need to break up the big monopolies. Now, you know, there's been a lot of people talking about this for a long time. And as I mentioned yesterday, I'm writing a book right now about big monopolies. So Howard Dean is on stage with Chris Matthews, and he says, oh, we need to break up the, uh, the big conglomerates. And Chris says, what about the media companies? And Howard Dean says, yeah, break up the media companies. You know, they should only be in the media business. They shouldn't be doing this, that, and the other thing. And, and Chris Matthews says, well, MSNBC is owned by General Electric, which it was at that time. Are you saying you would break up MSNBC? You'd split us off from our parent company? And Howard Dean says, yeah, it's what I think is the best thing. And I turned to Louise and I said, Howard Dean is toast. And my recollection is that it was less than a week or two later, but I'm not 
certain, and I'd have to go back and do some serious Google research, which doesn't seem like it would be you know, worth the effort right now. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that shortly thereafter, whether it was a week or two weeks or three weeks, whatever it was, shortly thereafter, the Dean scream happened. And the Dean scream was completely manufactured by the media. Howard Dean was in a room filled with screaming people. And he said, you know, we're going to Michigan and we're going to Minnesota and we're going to Wyoming and we're going to... And the mic was right up against his mouth. So the mic was picking up his voice, but not the crowd noise. But all he could hear was the crowd noise. So he's talking louder and louder because the crowd is screaming louder and louder. And then at the very end, he goes, yeah. And he's just echoing the crowd. But you're not hearing the crowd because of the way it was miked. And the media knows this. I mean, you know, any, anybody who's spent five minutes in the media knows this. That, that that quote scream, that that quote scandal, that that, that, that uh, oh my God, Howard Dean is losing it, was just completely manufactured by the media. Right after Howard Dean had said that he was going to break up the big media. And that's why I said, I think what Bernie is doing here is very dangerous to Bernie. I mean, it's a very good thing for America, but I think it's a very bad thing, for, or a very dangerous thing for Bernie. Um, he, he wrote an op-ed for the Columbia Journalism Review, and he, he notes, and this is just solid stuff, he says, over the past 15 years, keep in mind that the consolidation of the media really, really started taking place in a big way after 1996, when the, when the um, uh, Telecommunications Act of 1996 was passed and signed by President Clinton. The laws that the Telecommunications Act of 96 took down were basically the only reason why the media hadn't been consolidated like everything else was starting in 81 when Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act. So really, you know, your start point for the death of the media or for the consolidation of the media is 96. So Bernie writes in the, the Columbia Journalism Review, and he and I have discussed this on this show many times over the last two decades. This is Bernie. Over the past 15 years, more than 1,400 communities across the country have lost newspapers, which are the outlets local television, radio, and digital news sites rely on for reporting. Since 2008, we have seen newsrooms lose 28,000 employees. And in the past year alone, 3,200 people in the media industry have been laid off. Today, for every working journalist, there are six people now working in public relations, often pushing the corporate line. He opens the article, the op-ed, by saying, Today, after decades of consolidation and deregulation, just a small handful of companies control almost everything you watch, read, and download. And he notes that the consolidation, this from a piece over on Common Dreams, this consolidation, as well as the domination of the digital market by Facebook and Google, is just wiping out not just local news, independent news, but also wiping out any kind of hard-hitting reporting. Sanders says that what has filled the gap now that we no longer have news is infotainment, vapid punditry. It's so true. I mean, you know, you've here's a story. I'm going to report this story. Now I'm going to discuss it with three pundits for the next 15 minutes. That's entertainment. That's not news and business-friendly propaganda. Bernie writes, at precisely the moment when we need more reporters covering the health care crisis, the climate emergency, and economic inequality, we have television pundits paid tens of millions of dollars to pontificate about frivolous political gossip as local news outlets are eviscerated. So, 
you know, I just want to put this out there. I want to get this conversation going. I want to, you know, kind of wake people up to this. So that if or when the media decides to dean scream Bernie, or for that matter, Elizabeth Warren or any other progressive that, you know, might have the temerity to suggest that maybe we should break up big corporations, that you're like forewarned. And we can all point it out on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, and, you know, talking to our neighbors and writing letters to the editor of the newspaper. If you still have one, 1,400 communities losing their papers. I mean, how many cities are there in America? That's, that, that's mind-boggling. 1,400 newspapers gone? So... You know, what's it going to take? How long is this, you know, how long is Bernie going to survive this? He laid out a very specific plan that would Im- impose an immediate moratorium on any federal mergers of major media companies that would reinstate and strengthen media ownership rules. In other words, rolling back the 1996 Telecommunications Act or large pieces of it to limit the numbers of stations that large broadcasting corporations can own in each market and nationwide. Sinclair Broadcasting is going to go after him on this. Fox is going to go after him on this. He said we need to enforce antitrust laws against tech behemoths like Facebook and Google to, quote, prevent them from using their enormous market power to cannibalize, bilk, and defund news organizations. So I'm just telling you, I've seen this movie before, and so have you. And maybe you didn't realize what the movie was at the time, but you know we've all seen this movie before. Uh, Morris in Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Morris, what's up? Hey, Professor, check this out. Bernie Sanders is the leading progressive voice in the world. You know that. He cannot back down and he's not going back down no i'm not suggesting he is or he should i'm 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 just saying that when they come after him we need to be ready professor you know how trump can say he can go down to fifth avenue commit first degree murder Mm. and he will still have supporters well i'm not saying that bernie's on that level but there's not too much corporate media can say that's going to deter the rest of us from voting for this man and i was impressed big time impressed that homie went down to kentucky down to mitch mcconnell's hometown. Now, that's important because, see, Bernie Sanders can do something that no other candidate can do. You ever heard the word coattails? What do you mean? Coattails. Okay, you got the presidential race. Oh, then you coattails. Got, what, the yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. Well, no, you have to apologize. I, sometimes I don't speak clearly. No, well, that's, anyway, that's okay. I, I need to turn my volume up in my ear. <laughs> sorry, I thought you said hotels. Well, Anyhow, keep going, no, Morris. Uh, no, but, but but Bernie Sanders can can can, manu- can manufacture some coattail victories. Yeah. I don't care if you run it for the school board. If you got a D in front of your name, and that brother gets the nomination, it's on America. Yeah. And that's the truth. I think Thank you. I, you're you're welcome, Morris. And 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 I think that's true of Bernie. I think that's true of Elizabeth Warren. And we'll see if any of the other candidates decide to to just become unabashed progressives and and turn down big corporate money. But yeah, I'm I'm with you, Morris. Well said. Thank you very much. Ian, in Pompano Beach, Florida. Hey, Ian, what's on your mind today? You're talking about Bernie with campaign, uh, with uh, corporate consolidation. That's only one of the insidious aspects of what their bias is, because it doesn't talk about the billions of dollars 
that they're inclined to receive if public financing of elections doesn't start. Uh, they're just raking in, I think, like $10 billion a cycle at this point. Well, no, it's, it's closer to one or two. I think it was two, $2 billion. That's just was a federal nationwide was spent in the last election and in, in the 2016 the last presidential election the 2016 election and only and, and, one billion no it was it was just short of two and most of that went correctly uh, to television advertising yeah uh-huh but it's still that's that's a pile of money i mean that's a huge pile of money the Koch brothers themselves you know their network kicked in as i recall 700 million you know seven tenths of a billion so yeah you're absolutely but, right the media gets it more I mean, there's also the issue of talking about, you know, Medicare for all and what that would do for advertising for health insurance and health care and health and, and the and pharmaceutical drugs. companies. I mean, the, the, the media is making millions and millions of dollars every day off pharmaceutical companies. And we're uh, it, there's only two countries, developed countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical advertising on television, New Zealand and, and there's us. more. Okay. There's also the issue of tax rates, of what the corporation tax rates would be and what the individual tax rates would be on $5 million um, talk show hosts and right. uh, $20 million, $30 million CEOs, $40 yep. million, $50 million CEOs. So they've got all this incentive to dumb down the average viewer in mm. terms of what Warren and or Bernie and or any other progressives message might be in and of course the other message being that they make it so easy they use the same news story hour after hour they just change the face instead of digging in deep on issues like climate change and carrying on their responsibility as the informers of the public yeah no your, your points are all uh, you know excellent and well no. taken and and I completely agree on all of them and and, you know, like I said, forewarned is forearmed. Keep an eye out. Watch this space. Bob in San Jose. Hey, Bob, what's up? Well, I was going to mention that the media consolidation that I guess you could point the finger and say in 1996, but there's another thing going on which people don't realize. When they have cable TV and they, they go from channel to channel, some of them are cable-only channels, some of them are over-the-air channels, and it's the over-the-air channels that were affected by those rules. The cable channels never were. But look at Fox News with quotes around that. And what you see is very little real reporting. What you see is a lot of pontificating. And that's because it's much cheaper to bring in a retired general or, or some other figurehead who who's a known name and pay them uh, you know, a couple thousand bucks for 15 minutes uh, on the air as opposed to sending a reporting team out that actually goes and finds something, and that then the something may, may end up being the same, you know, a two-minute story. I completely agree, but it's not just Fox News. The, the oh, same no, thing is Fox, happening with MSNBC Fox, and Fox, CNN. Fox, in comparison, Fox went to the no reporting and all opinion all the time model way ahead of everybody else, and that kind of forced everybody else to follow suit in order to stay profitable against Fox. Well, I think they're all just trying to stay profitable, period. The other thing that they discovered was, uh, you know, when the writer's strike happened, and I think that was in 98, they invented reality television, basically, you know, because they didn't have writers for the sitcoms. And so, so they, they started these reality TV shows, and they were successful. People loved them, and they didn't require union actors, and they didn't require union screenwriters, and they could do them on the cheap. And that's what they're doing now with news. It's, it's reality yeah, TV news. Way to cut the payroll. <laughs> yep, there you go. Well said, Bob. Bob, thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it.
You're listening to Tom Hartman. You know, the demands of the, uh, the economy that we've had since Reagan, you know, as the middle class gets wiped out, more and more of us are working more and more hours and in many cases more and more jobs and not getting quite as much sleep as we used to. And therefore, we end up with bags under our eyes. What do you do about that? What works is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TryPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM. Michelle in Poptown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Michelle, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to talk about Youngstown, Ohio, and the media there because... As we remember, it was supposed to be the poster city for Trump's revitalization. It was supposed to get their jobs back. It was supposed to be this, you know, economic wasteland turned prosperity. And very sadly, their 150-year newspaper failed a few months ago, and it just completely folded up. At the time, I remember thinking, what's going to happen there? The people are isolated. Now they have no source of outside news. And I wasn't at all surprised to hear that one of the foil mass shooting plots was from a, a young male from, from Youngstown. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we're looking at the gutting of America, basically. You know, our, our, our courts are being packed. Our regulatory agencies are being loaded with people. They're either being shut down, like the Federal Election Commission now. One of the Republicans is resigning from the Federal Election Commission, which means that it doesn't have enough members to have a quorum to, to do anything. So if, you know, some right-wing billionaire decides that they're going to break campaign finance laws and just hand a bunch of money to a candidate, there's no cop on the beat. There's nobody there to enforce the law. And, and literally, I mean, the, the, the Trump administration is literally taking down the Federal Election Commission. And, you know, with what they're polluting or poisoning, the, the Interior Department is now being run by, a, by an oil lobbyist. The, the EPA is being run by a coal lobbyist. The Education Department is run by a woman who is a lobbyist for, you know, on, in her own way, Betsy DeVos, for private schools and for the destruction of public education. I mean, this is how you destroy a functioning democracy, using the tools of democracy to destroy it. And it's absolutely what's going on. Michelle, thank you for pointing that out. That's an excellent call. Uh, Sam in Denver. Hey, Sam, what's on your mind? Thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's Hi, up? Me? I'm kind of a centrist. I call myself an independent centrist who doesn't vote in the primaries. I think progressivism sounds like a great idea, but uh, the issue I have is, like, uh, it's not really me. It's a lot of people have told me who are, like, especially older Democrats that... Um, so Obama was much more to the right of Sanders, and he struggled to get Obamacare through, and he struggled to close Guantanamo Bay. But Sanders is like it wants to do ten times more of what uh, Obama wants, like with the free health care, like single payer Medicare for all, 
free college, all of these things. But he, Obama had such a hard time with Obamacare. I, a lot of people, including myself, are just like uh, with Sanders. It's like these sound like great ideas, like free college and student debt cancellation. But you know, how does it work? Because Obama could barely get his agenda passed. When Reagan came into office, nobody believed that any president could drop the top tax rate from 74% down to 25%. Nobody believed that, that a president would be able to get away with gutting our regulatory agencies. Everybody completely believed that the unions, who were extraordinarily powerful at that time, they represented a third of American working people, would tolerate being destroyed by, by a president. And yet Reagan did it. He did all those things. When Obama did Obamacare, he did it very cautiously. He tried to in, in, involve all of the interested parties, as it were. So he had the health insurance executives in. He had the pharmaceutical executives. He was like, don't worry, we're going to take care of you guys. You're going to benefit from all this. He was doing it the way that basically the way the politics have been done for, you know, since the 70s in the United States, since the Supreme Court legalized corporations and, and rich individuals owning politicians. He did it the kind of corporate Democrat way. And that's, in my opinion, that's why he had such difficulty. And the Guantanamo thing, he didn't fight for. He had a huge megaphone. I mean, look at what Donald Trump does every single day. Uh, for a whole year, or almost a year, Barack Obama was largely silent about the theft of Merrick Garland's seat on the Supreme Court. And for that matter, he put Merrick Garland, who was a Republican recommended by Orrin Hatch of Utah, the senator from Utah, at Obama's request, Obama said to Orrin Hatch, you know, find me somebody who will be acceptable to Republicans in the Senate so that I don't have a fight in my last year. And Orrin Hatch says, OK, here's Merrick Garland. He's a Republican. He's a moderate. He's kind of in the middle of the road. He's he'll be just fine. And Obama didn't even fight that. So and this isn't, you know, an indictment of Barack Obama. He was working with what he had and he had a very, very slim majority. He only had, uh, you know, a veto proof Congress for 74 days, business days out of his presidency. But all that said, I think that if you've got somebody who actually articulates a bold vision, a big vision, you know, a clear vision, as Reagan did and as I think Bernie would or, or Elizabeth Warren would, then it can get done and people will rally around the cause. But Obama never made a, he never came to the American people and said, these people are trying to mess with us. Look at what they're doing. He could have called out Joe, uh, what's his name, uh, from Connecticut. Lieberman, Joe Lieberman. He could have called him out for blowing up the public option. He didn't even do that. Beverly in Bradenton, Florida. Hey, Beverly, what's up? Hi, my issue today is with the DNC. Okay. They're up to their old tricks of playing catch-22 with Tulsi Gabbard. Okay. And How so? She met the criteria of donations. Right. She met the criteria of coming up in the polls. Right. Now they've decided that it has to be polls that they approve, even though she's well, met of course. the criteria. She's met the criteria in like I think it's ten of twenty-six polls. Those are not the polls that they're recognizing all of a sudden. Yeah, but that, this is not all of a sudden, Beverly. The, the, the you know there's there's all kinds of polls out there, and a lot of them are just nonsense, and particularly the ones that are online polls. And so what the DNC said, they said this long before Tulsi Gabbard was not making it to the third debate, what they've been saying from the get-go, from the very beginning, even the first two debates were based on hitting 1% of the polls. Now they're saying you have to hit 2% of the polls. But what they've been saying is that here are four polls 
that we know are run by professional polling organizations and that you can't scam by having all your buddies hit it on the internet. These are real polls. And if you don't hit that 2% on these real polls, you're not going to make it. So I don't know where you're getting this, Beverly, but it's just not, it's not the case. This is not some conspiracy to take down Tulsi Gabbard. Well, it appears to me that it is. Yeah. It's like they did Bernie in 2016. Any way they could ignore him, they did. Yeah, that was, and, that was, that was a, you know, yes, the DNC and, and Donna Brazil even wrote a book and had a whole chapter apologizing to Bernie for that. But that was not this, and that DNC is not this DNC. And so, you know, I just, you know, this is not, this is not a crisis. Susan in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Susan, you wanted to talk about Bernie? Yes, Bernie. And um, when you mentioned him going after the monopolies, I think he's actually been addressing this for a while. Like even after the first debate, he started mentioning all the industries that we have to attack in order to get the policies we want. So when you said that, it kind of uh, showed where, why I support him. Even the way he runs his campaign, he's, he's going around the media because they don't want to cover him. Yeah. And he's doing it to rallies and that doing it on his own and the way he gets his money. And I think some of the progressives who aren't as strong, maybe not trying to get on the debate, they're breaking down and taking corporate money. But this is his strength, and that just shows it as he attacks them, because I agree with Tom Steyer that that's the only way we're going to get the policies we want is with through the taking down the corporations. Yeah. I have extended this invitation to all uh, through Sean, our, our, my producer, to all of the Democratic candidates. Every single one of them has gotten a note from us saying you are welcome to come on our program and you can have up to an hour and you can take calls from listeners if you want. And, uh, awesome. and, and I'm not going to be debating you. I'm going to be giving you an opportunity to talk to the American people. Even on the things where we may disagree, I will express my disagreement, but I'm not going to turn it into a, uh, into a fight. I want people to get a sense of who these folks are. And, you know, if any of the other Democratic candidates want to come on, they are more than welcome. We've got a, a, a seat Can, I, can I mention something else sure. that I think might be a solution for the Democrats? After I, I studied advertising in uh, my graduate work, and I think what we need to do is the Democratic Party itself needs to come up with a campaign that addresses a lot of these issues and run it nationwide, like why privatizing prisons doesn't work, why we are right. not, why socialism isn't a bad word, uh, some of the other issues as well, education, why we need education, and how the Republicans stand and how we stand. Well, here's, here's part of the problem, Susan. There is a small yeah. caucus within the Democratic Party. It's, it's called the Blue Dog Caucus, and there's also the Problem Solver Caucus. They kind of overlap, and they are funded in part by, by the Koch brothers. And so, and in fact, we're going to be talking about this in the second hour of the program tomorrow. We're going to have on a guy who is launching a primary challenge against one of the leaders of this caucus who is taking money from a group's affiliated with the Koch brothers and has been voting against the very issues that you were just talking about. In other words, voting with the Republicans. It's just, it's just, oh, well, you know, you. it's just 30 some odd folks who are members of these caucuses, but they are, they are uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Oh, and, out. Yeah, you're welcome, that. Susan. Thank you for the call. And, you know, and until we kind of clean up our act with this regard, you're not going to hear the Democratic Party speaking with one voice. And that's the problem. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts, and Fair Elections by Carolyn Fredrickson. This is from Chapter 4, uh, which would be page 105. It's titled The Least Dangerous Branch. And the chapter opens with a quote from right-wing talk show host Hugh Hewitt. He said, when President Obama set out to nominate a replacement for Justice Scalia, I coined a hashtag, no hearings, no votes, that telegraphed a principled opposition to tipping the Supreme Court very hard to the left in an election year, an opposition that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had already resolved upon. It was an opposition independent of the name and qualifications of whomever President Obama would eventually send to the Senate. It would turn out to be the very able jurist, but living constitutional enthusiast Judge Merrick Garland. And that opposition to holding hearings and conducting votes would stick. Only one Republican senator broke with the leader, Illinois' Mark Kirk, and he was defeated in November. End of quote from Hugh Hewitt. That's conservative commentator Hugh Hewitt explaining how the right foiled President Obama's effort to fill the final Supreme Court vacancy that rose during his presidency. Opposition to anyone whom Obama might nominate defiantly announced within hours of Scalia's death. They play hardball. The right seeks to control both state and federal courts, working with aggressive campaign operatives to run extremist campaigns for state judgeships and promoting federal nominees through the Federalist Society, the Judicial Crisis Network, and the Heritage Foundation. Infrastructure lavishly funded by the Koch brothers, the Mercers, and a another extremely wealthy conservative family and the Chamber of Commerce. This secretive network has had a demonstrable impact on the nation's courts, resulting in an increasingly reactionary Supreme Court and business-dominated state courts with far-reaching impacts on social justice. Data shows that elected judges favor contributions and in partisan interests, and Republican federal appointees rule for corporate interests over average people. And conservatives infuse the importance of the court into their political strategy, pushing it down so that the base of the Republican Party began to see the judiciary and its rulings as a key voting issue. Donald Trump represents the culmination of this strategy, whereby evangelicals have embraced a philandering sexual abuser because he would give them the judges they want dedicated to overturning Roe v. Wade. Complacent after years of assuming the courts were a bulwark for liberty and personal rights, the left blithely ignored the radical change that was happening right before their eyes. During the years of the Warren Court, the liberal justices issued opinions upholding the rights to privacy, limiting abuses by police and government officials, and ending legal segregation, allowing many to think the courts would protect us without our needing to protect them from infiltration and dominance by the hard right. Unfortunately, the left is still somnolent, as well as sanctimonious, with many finding it distasteful to mix politics and judiciary selection, even in the face of an ever more conservative judiciary. In a perfect world, I'd favor a detente of sorts between right and left over the courts. Indeed, I would vastly prefer a professional judiciary that was immune to politics. But because the right has gone from conventional to nuclear arms in the battle for the courts, progressives need to deploy an effective counterweight to ensure our courts aren't captured by reactionary zealots. As conservatives have done, we need to develop a pipeline for state court candidates and federal appointees and a well-resourced support system for them. Along with fighting for good judges, we need to advance a vision of the Constitution. It's one that understands that the document was drafted to serve we the people or one that purports, like the right's originalism, to mind-read the views of 18th century slave owners to determine the meaning of a particular vague phrase with the inevitable conservative outcome, 
We need to develop and disseminate persuasive approaches and theories to challenge conservative legal arguments and constitutional interpretations. And we need to make sure to educate both elected and appointed judges with seminars, forums, and writings to ensure that they are aware of and can implement our ideas. Legal groups were built into the original DNA of the conservative infrastructure. The godfather of the effort to build a battalion of right-wing institutions, future Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell, recognized that the courts were a key battleground. Along with the Heritage Foundation, ALEC, and the other organizations that helped solidify the right-wing hold on our branches of government, the Federalist Society and conservative public interest law groups were created to generate legal scholarship and litigation strategies that, crucially, built a pipeline of dependable reactionaries to take seats on state and federal benches. A supportive legal structure enabled through the appointment or election of aligned judges, the development and normalization of legal theories to justify conservative positions, and the hiring of litigators to move those theories into practice would ensure that the rights policy goals wouldn't be thwarted by an independent judiciary. The left has pioneered the concept of public interest law firms, with the ACLU and the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund being among the most prominent examples. Inspired by legal victories of those groups and others, conservative lawyers founded their own organizations to advance their agenda. The Powell Memo contemplated that the Chamber of Commerce would take the lead on pro-business litigation. And while the Chamber did quickly move to establish the U.S. Chamber Litigation Center in 1977, other groups, such as the Pacific Legal Foundation, the Alliance Defending Freedom, and the Project on Fair Representation, also emerged to challenge environmental rules, access to reproductive health care, affirmative action, and public education. These legal groups may have been inspired by the left's successes, but they were quite different. Unlike the nonpartisan and principled ACLU and NAACP LDF, which sometimes work at cross-purposes with the Democratic Party, and sometimes, in the case of the ACLU, even against the progressive agenda, legal groups on the right tracked the Republican platform. Moreover, their work was significantly supported by corporations because their litigation advanced the company's bottom lines. Exxon, for example, lavishly funded the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is vigorously litigated to undermine environmental policy, including efforts to control global warming. The Democracy Fix by Carolyn Fredrickson. Want to sleep well? Want to sleep deep? Want to sleep long? Want to sleep comfortably? You got to check out this new product. It's called the Pod. It's a brand new bed. It's like the Tesla of beds. It's by a company called Eight Sleep, E-I-G-H-T Sleep. Like, you know, sleep eight hours a night. Um, I don't know if that's where the name came from, but that's, that's what it reminds me of. Anyhow, it's the ultimate sleep machine. The Pod is the first and only high-tech bed designed to help you achieve peak mind and body performance. How does it work? Well, the Pod actually is measuring your your body temperature and your movement and you know all your metrics uh, you know of your body all night long and throughout the night it adjusts the temperature of the bed no other bed does this it adjusts the temperature of the bed and it can cool it down as well as warm it up uh, you know depending on what your body needs you know what the what's going on in the room all this kind of stuff i mean this is a smart bed Try the pod for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup uh, only at 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tom. They've already sold out uh, their first two batches. They're going fast for a limited time. You can get $150 off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tom.
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Alexander in Playa del Rey, California, watching us on Facebook Live. Hey, Alexander, what's up? Hey, Tom. I've been a little confused about this uh, going back and forth on who can beat Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Now, I've, I've, a lot of stuff has been coming out on uh, Joe Biden's gaffes, and my girlfriend said uh, that it's not true, the gaffes. He's always had that, even when he was with Obama. And uh, the, the stuff that the, some of these progressives are saying is that he's going senile, and he has a mental problem, and he can't beat Trump. Uh, I, I'm just concerned on who can beat Trump. I like Bernie Sanders. That there are people saying, well, Bernie Sanders is too far left. MSNBC uh, says that a few times. Uh, but I hear other uh, progressives saying different things. So I'm confused. Can you help me out on this? Sure. Um, in 2008, in the primary in 2008, when Hillary Clinton was going up against Barack Obama for the Democratic nomination, on this program, we had one of the one of the senior officials with the California Democratic Party, himself an African American, who who said, "Do not vote for Barack Obama because America will never elect a black man, particularly one whose middle name is Hussein, and therefore we have to go with Hillary Clinton because she's the safe candidate." Well, Hillary Clinton didn't win that primary, and the unsafe candidate, the guy who couldn't beat a Republican, became president twice, Barack Obama. And the reason why is because he was a transformational candidate, or he, he campaigned as a, you know, hope and change, literally. He was campaigning on change. And, 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 and then he did the same thing four years later. Uh, and, and people had figured out what a you know, fundamentally decent guy he was. And so I believe that if you have a, and then, and then again in 2016, it was, uh, oh, don't, don't put Bernie up there. Bernie will be, you know, he'll lose to Donald Trump. Hillary will beat Donald Trump. And, and Hillary didn't beat Donald Trump. You know, it's, it's because a lot of Democrats just said, eh, and they didn't, and they didn't show up. They didn't vote. And because it was like, eh, you know, the safe candidate, I don't really care. I, you know, I, w- I want some change. I want some serious change. And I really think that, you know, Trump won as a base candidate. He is running as a base candidate. And I think that the Democrats need to nominate a base candidate, somebody who is going to activate, energize, excite, and enthuse the base of the party. When Elizabeth Warren now, she gave a a speech in Los Angeles a couple days ago and pulled 15,000 people. Um, she's, yes. she's getting 10,000 people in Iowa, for God's sake. Um, yes, I heard. Uh, so, I mean, that, that is a person who can win an election. Uh, Bernie Sanders draws huge crowds. That's a, he's, a, he's a person who can win an election. But then you've got a bunch of candidates who are, quote, the safe candidates, you know, the, 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 who, are, and, you know uh, who are drawing 200 people, 300 people, as Hillary Clinton was doing, you know, back when, in, in, in 2016. And I just, I just think that, this is just my personal opinion, and it's not an endorsement or an unendorsement of anybody, but I think that, you know, the people who are counseling us to go with the, quote, safe candidate, whoever that may be. I mean, a bunch of, Bennett has been called that. Biden has been called that. Klobuchar has been called that. The people who are counseling us to go with the safe candidate generally are the Republican consultants on MSNBC. And, right. And I really don't need any more advice from Republican consultants. Thank you very much. Alexander, good talking to you. Thank you for the call. Um, I think if we run a solid base campaign with a solid base candidate, or two, you have know, two people on the ticket, that we will wipe the floor with these guys. We'll take the Senate back, we'll hold the House, and we'll take the White House. 
Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Doug Christian with Talk Media News. This report brought to you by GhostForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. Doug, what's up in the world? President Trump says that trade wars are uh, easy to win. But right now, it kind of looks like they may not be so easy to win. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue found his patients wearing thin in a recent meeting with uh, farmers, and he joked. He said, what do you call two farmers in a basement? A wine cellar. Oh, and geez. the uh, the American Farm Bureau says that bankruptcies in farms are up 13% from 2018, and loan delinquency rates are also up. Wow. And China is fighting tit for tat. And today they actually went in and, again, devalued the yuan. Brookings reports that these trade wars may have drastic effects on the U.S. worker. They, uh, Brookings reports that uh, they count some 2.1 million jobs in 40 industries that, uh, that produce products in the U.S. that would be affected um, by continuing uh, trade wars. Yeah, I think this is why the market took a dive today. And plus, everybody learned that when Donald Trump yesterday or the day before said, uh, oh, China called us twice, you know, to talk about trade. They want to come back to the table. He was lying through his teeth. The Chinese are saying there was no call, and they, you know, reporters have asked the, the White House, do you have any evidence of the call? Can you tell us when it came, who it came from? Oh, sorry, we got nothing. Trump just lied through his teeth. Well, Again. and the bitter fact is, is that uh, China has uh, made it clear that they'll fight uh, tit for tat, that they, right. uh, and uh, Trump has found himself in an impossible situation of his own making, yeah, uh, whereby he actually is losing this incipient uh, trade war. And President and, Xi is not facing re-election. He's, he's, you know, president for life. Right. So, so he doesn't care. That's right. Um, over in Brazil, the uh, uh, Juan Bolsonaro, yeah, Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro, yes, um, says that he will reject um, twenty-one million dollars in aid unless he gets an apology by from uh, France's Emmanuel Macron, um, and because uh, he feels slighted, um, hmm. and. Uh, he said, uh, and of course, uh, uh, Brazil's ambassador to France uh, says that uh, we refuse because we see interference in help. That we, and he said the G7 has decided um, has decided to help us without Brazil. So uh, these fires, of course, were are created uh, by people who are actually. Carrying, they're actually taking chains between two tractors and dragging down the trees, waiting for the trees to dry out, and then they light them on fire to clear for pasture land for uh, beef and also for soy. Right. So, and, and now their soy exports are up dramatically. It's, I think it was 27%. I read the, the statistics earlier today, um, year over year, uh, just, just in soy. In fact, they've exported more soy so far this year than they did the entire year of uh, 2014, uh, just to China. Course, yeah, and of course the idea that somehow that uh, American farmers are going to get back uh, the soy sales to China it's a uh, after uh, Trump, it's ridiculous. It took uh, decades for them to build this uh, relationship, and, and that's now been destroyed. Right. To, uh, Sonny Perdue actually said two farmers in a basement is a wine cellar. He, he is the Secretary yep. of Agriculture. Yep. 
Did he say he that in a private that. venue or a public venue? It was a public venue. He actually said that. Let me just see. I got my notes here. Um, he said that in a gathering uh, in southern Minnesota. Uh, and he tried to break the ice with, a, with that joke. Oh, my God. Yep. Yeah, farmers, farmers in America who, who overwhelmingly voted for Trump have got to be just stunned and in shock. Anyhow, back to you, Doug. Uh, so let's uh, move over to Iran and the JCPOA. And Iran's uh, Rouhani is ruling out talks with the U.S. until uh, sanctions are lifted. So uh, while Emmanuel Macron and others uh, within uh, the European Union are, are, are trying to keep Iran engaged, um, there seems to be no cooperation uh, from our president to do so. Rouhani right. said that Iran is always ready to hold talks. But they need the sanctions lifted now. Right, right. Which would just um, be undoing what Trump did. The, the sanctions had been lifted, and, and Iran's re- economy was recovering, and there was even, you know, substantial talk in the Iranian expat community. I have several good friends who are Iranian expats that we may see democracy in Iran in the next decade or so if things keep going in this direction. And then Trump came in and totally screwed it up and strengthened the hand, frankly, of the Ayatollahs because now, right. you know, they're like, see, we told you you couldn't trust America. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Doug Christian with uh, Talk Media News. Thank you, Doug. Thanks. Good talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. CBD oil is popping up all over the place, and a lot of people are trying it. In fact, they're, they're even adding it to some foods and drinks and things. But the easiest way to take CBD oil is to take pure CBD oil from New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals, this is NU Leaf Naturals. Uh, Their CBD oil is the best quality in the market. It's 100% organic, it's highly concentrated, it contains no additional additives. It's grown right here in the USA. The only ingredient is hemp, so it's pure and simple and legal. So this is a potent pain reliever and anti-inflammatory compound, CBD oil. And New Leaf Naturals is the best. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-Leafnaturals.com. And save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at New Leaf Naturals. Go to N-U-Leafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Welcome back. On the line with us is Tom Steyer, the philanthropist, Next Gen America, a nonprofit group that combats climate change, the Democratic candidate for president in 2020. His website, Tom Steyer, S-T-E-Y-E-R.com, if you're not familiar with him, which would be surprising. And uh, his Twitter handle, of course, is at Tom Steyer. Tom, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. What provoked you to run for president? Tom, I was listening to the debates, and I was terrified that the country wasn't going to come to grips in a real way with the problems that are in front of us, that we were going to have a series of important and fascinating policy debates about health care and about the Green New Deal, about immigration, things that are absolutely critical about gun violence. I listened to the debates, and I thought they were turning into policy discussions that were absolutely important, but that we weren't dealing with step one, which is how are any of them going to get enacted? As long as we've had a hostile corporate takeover of our government, we have a failed national government. And until we restore 
our democracy until we get back to government of, by, and for the people. None of those incredibly important policies that the American people are demanding is going to happen. And I felt as if I didn't get into this debate, we weren't going to deal with how we were going to get things done. We were going to talk about what we wanted and the different nuances of health care and of immigration and of gun violence and of the Green New Deal. But we weren't going to deal with the issue, which is how do we get any of this done in a broken federal government? Doesn't this all go back to 1976 to the Buckley versus Vallejo decision when for the very first time in the history of the United States, the Supreme Court ruled that money was the same thing as speech and that, you know, billionaires could essentially own, even multimillionaires could own politicians. And then, you know, two years later in First National Bank versus Bellotti, they extended that to corporations. Well, Tom, it does go back to that. And it really is a corporate question. For the last 10 years, I've been organizing coalitions of ordinary American citizens to take on corporations at the ballot box and also organizing Americans to be registered, to be engaged politically, and to vote. And for 10 years, we've been beating corporations. For 10 years, we've been taking on oil companies and utilities and tobacco companies. I've closed a billion-dollar tax loophole for corporations and sent it to the public schools. So I know this can be done, but I think we need somebody from the outside, somebody who's not part of the Washington establishment, somebody who can name this and call it out so we can break that corporate stranglehold and then get all the policies done that we all know we need. Several of the more progressive candidates, and I think some of the ones who probably wouldn't even call themselves progressives, have been for some time calling for a constitutional amendment to basically roll back Citizens United, which is the full realization of the Buckley decision and the First National Bank decision, and McCutcheon as well, you know, all of these decisions. Theoretically, it could be done legislatively. The Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution says that the Supreme Court shall operate under regulations and within the context of exceptions as defined by Congress. So Congress, it's called court stripping. Congress could literally pass a law saying the Supreme Court may not rule on this and by the way, we're reversing Buckley. A, B, if we could get two-thirds of the House and Senate and three-quarters of the states to go along with it, we could pass a constitutional amendment, although, you know, it's a pretty big lift. How else could that get done, in your opinion? You're talking about electing the right guy, presumably yourself. If you were president, what could you do outside of the political process that might bring this about? Well, Tom, I think when we think about a critical issue like this, like the hostile corporate takeover of our government, the first thing is to name it and get a mandate to change it. So this election, that's why I felt I should run, is I feel like you have to name the problem so that Americans can hear what it is that you think is critical to changing the country and their lives for the better. So the first thing is to run on it and to get a broad sweeping mandate that this is what's wrong. The second thing is, of course, we want to get rid of Citizens United, but I've also talked about putting in term limits for Congress of 12 years for Congress people and senators. I've talked about a national referendum that if Congress won't act on something like gun violence, that you can put it directly to the people, where over 90% of Americans want mandatory background checks on every gun sale. Of course, we're interested in getting the Americans the ability to vote easily and in broader numbers. But I think the other thing that's true is you can use the power of the presidency with what's already there. On day one, you can start to reform and make the Federal Election Commission have extreme radical transparency for money gifts. 
and change the kinds of fines. In 2018, the total amount of fines from the FEC in the national election was $600,000. That's just completely off the charts. That means that if you do break the law in elections, if you do hide the source of the money, if you do, in fact, use so-called dark money, there's no cost to it. Right. And we know that that's been done. For of course we do. In gigantic size. Yeah. So when we think about what's going on here, the first thing is to bring it up, but the second thing is to use the existing laws the kind of transparency that everybody knows where the money's coming from and they'll figure out why. We've seen that when people understand that there's millions of dollars coming from corporations in their self-interest, that money is worth much less. Yeah. People understand they're just trying to buy the government, which is what they've effectively done. Right, and it's an extraordinary return on investment, by the way. There was a, one study done last year that suggested the companies lobbying for tax cuts were getting something like a 400 to 1 return on their investment for just lobbying. They got a $1.2 trillion tax cut from the Republicans and the Trump administration. Right, and whatever probably based on a couple, couple million in, dollars worth of lobbying. Whatever they've put in, that is a fantastic return. Yeah. You look at the drug companies. I don't know what the drug companies have put in, but we pay double what everybody else pays for the exact same drugs, and they've made it illegal to go to Canada to buy the exact same drugs at half price. So who do you think wrote that law? Yeah, it's fairly obvious. You mentioned essentially a national referendum and you mentioned term limits. The term limits thing is challenging. I understand the desire to somehow get around the advantage of incumbency on the one hand. On the other hand, what we've seen in individual states that have instituted term limits is that, you know, when a new person comes into Congress or state legislature, the first thing that they look for is somebody who can show them, you know, teach them the ropes, show them how things work and how things get accomplished and, you know, what the processes are. And in the states that have had fairly aggressive term limits, what we've seen is that that permanent infrastructure, which used to be, you know, the old farts, the people who had been in Congress or had, you know, been there for 10, 20, 30 years, they would take these new people on and kind of mentor them, that they have been replaced essentially by lobbyists as the new permanent infrastructure in those states with term limits. How do you avoid that problem with the term limits that you're suggesting? Well, I think that is the fine line you have to walk, Tom is that you cannot make it too aggressive so that, in fact, people never get settled in. At the same time, you take away the idea of people who've just become fronts for corporations. Yeah. And so it is a fine line. I agree with you. That's a good point. But I do think what we're seeing in Congress is failure. I mean, if you just think about what a normal national legislature would deal with, certainly gun violence, where we have had more than one mass shooting for every day of the year. Whereas, in fact, the next country with the most mass shootings is Mexico with three. Wow. We're approaching 300. Right. The next most is three. If you look at immigration, comprehensive immigration reform, you would think any country that had 11 to 13 million people living here without documentation would deal with that in a matter of years, or certainly in over decades, we can't even bring up the question. We are the only country in the world that is not dealing with climate at a national level. The list, you know, we pay twice as much for health care as any other country in the world. 
and we have lower incomes. We're 52 in the world in terms of life expectancy. So you're talking about, I mean, I said a broken government. Yeah. We are not doing, our national government is failing in front of our eyes. And yet this was a variation on that theme was essentially what Donald Trump ran on. And that tells me, and, you know, he's sitting in the White House right now. Yes, Hillary Clinton got three million more votes. But but still, what that tells me is that there is a deep hunger in America for that kind of a message. The system is broken. It's, it's broken in a way that was intentional. It was broken by very, very wealthy and powerful interests. And they're basically trying to screw the average working person to make themselves richer. My language, not yours, but, uh, you know. Tom. Go ahead. To me, the key point in American politics is that four out of five Americans, so that goes across geography, it goes across party lines, it goes across ages, four out of five Americans believe corporations have bought the democracy. Right. And of course it explains Mr. Trump. Do you remember Drain the Swamp? Yeah. It turns out he was the biggest swamp rat ever. Oh, yeah. But his point resonated because people across the United States believe that corporations have bought the democracy. And he said, I'm going to fight for you. It turned out he was going to fight for the corporations harder than anybody else. But he claimed he was going to fight for them. The fact that he said something that Americans believe in got elected on it doesn't mean they were wrong just because he's been a terrible president. Yeah. In fact, every solution, his tax plan supported corporations more than probably any other piece of legislation in the history of the United States. Tom Sayer, we have to take a break. Do you want to stick around or do you have to move along? Let me stick around for a few more minutes, Tom. I love talking with you and your listeners. Great. Thank you. Tom Steyer is with us, the philanthropist, uh, next-gen America, uh, Democratic candidate for president 2020. Tom Steyer, S-T-E-Y-E-R.com is his website. You said that you wanted to take the issue of corporate power and corporate governance, essentially, to the American people. That sounds like a national referendum. There is no national referendum in the Constitution. We have about half our states have the ability of individual people to put things on the ballot. You want to flesh that out a little? Look, I think what we have in 26 states is when the legislature can't act, you can get a certain number of signatures, put a proposal on the ballot, and then have a vote. And if enough citizens vote for it, it becomes law. Mm -hmm. That's true in 26 states. To do that would take a ton of legislation and maybe a constitutional amendment. So it's also possible that we could do this in a way where we could have an actual vote and we could do it and it would be advisory and you'd then have a, be able to tell who voted and basically hold elected officials to account if they didn't follow the desires of their constituents. And the obvious example is mandatory background checks on guns, where over 90% of Americans want mandatory background checks on every gun purchase, but we don't have that, and it's really off the table again. Yeah. So the question is, how can you call yourself a representative of your constituents when you do the bidding of the gun manufacturers who give you money through the NRA instead of over 90% of your constituents? And in fact, the result of that is the murder of innocent Americans, including innocent American children. I mean, how could, you know, if we could get that, not a poll, but a national vote to prove that, I think that would take us a step, although, of course, it's a million times better to get it let, put into law. But given the broken nature of our politics, we're going to have to figure out as we go exactly what we can get and then push it further as we go along. We had here in Washington State, uh, or just north of us in Washington State, about 70 percent 
support for carbon tax. Jay Inslee got it on the ballot. I mean, you know, it was a citizen's referendum, but it got on the ballot. And I live in Portland, and so we get Washington State you know, TV ads here because Vancouver's right across the river and it's one of the larger cities in Washington state. And this former Republican AG who never identified himself as a Republican, but looked like Mr. Rogers, came on TV and said, you know, this is going to cost a trillion dollars or more. It's going to wipe you out. It's going to raise your taxes. It's a terrible, terrible idea. And that ad ran like eight or nine times a day, every single day, all the way up to the election. And that proposal went down in flames. This is the confluence of your suggestion that, you know, citizens get involved and we have ballot initiatives and, you know, you're identifying the problem of corporate power and and spending money in elections. Is it not? Yes, it is. But let me say this, Tom, I've done this. We've beaten the oil companies on this very issue with 70% of the vote. We've beaten the utilities We've taken on the tobacco companies when they were had won 17 times in a row, and we beat them. We were talking just a moment ago, and you said that for the last decade, you have been successfully taking on corporate power. This is something I don't know a great deal about, about you. Tell us about this. Well, I mean, it started literally 10 years ago when there was a ballot initiative put on by two oil companies to roll back the most progressive energy laws in the world, which are the California energy laws. Mm -hmm. And they had had a similar fight four years before where someone had taken them on, spent 72 million of his own dollars and lost his money and lost his reputation and lost the ballot initiative. So no one really wanted to take them on. We did a completely different strategy. We started with the knowledge that we need a coalition that's grassroots oriented, that goes right to the communities, that starts with Latinos and African Americans and Asian Americans, that includes labor at its core. We got half the chambers of commerce in the state. We had a different message, which is the argument that you were describing with Jay Inslee in Washington, where it was basically jobs versus the environment, is a lie. We called that out day one. We said we have to win the economic argument. Right. And by the way, if I may people, interrupt we will you, create jobs, yeah. and we got seventy percent of the vote. Talking about clean air and jobs. Yeah, and I just want to make clear: you're not saying that Jay Inslee was lying. What you're saying is that the guys who were opposing Jay Inslee's carbon oh, tax completely. Were lying. Yeah, I have a ton of respect for Governor Inslee. Yeah, I consider him a friend. I think he's wonderful. This is the key lie from the corporations, from the Republican Party, and from Mr. Trump, that it's a choice between a healthy environment and a healthy economy. And the truth is, the only choice is a healthy economy and a healthy environment. They are lying about it. And you have to call them out aggressively. I would have gone and taken them on directly. You can never let them get on a soapbox and lie unchallenged, because that's what they do. And so it's very clear. Before you start, you know what they're going to say. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, and you have a plan for this, specifically. To me, oh my gosh, we know, we've done so many studies to prove that if we move to clean energy, it will create millions of net jobs. It will create lower-cost energy. It's Clean energy is already lower-cost. It will clean up the air and make us healthier and live longer, and it will make us grow faster and have higher wages. It's kind of one of those things where they have to get in the room together and say, how do we tell a lie about this? Because they have no evidence. This is a simple question of corporations putting the health and safety of every single American at risk for the sake of their bottom line and having Republicans and the Trump administration go along with it. And it's gotten to a critical point. 
I mean, one of the things, Tom, I've said I would declare a climate emergency on day one of my presidency. That's, that's, that's where one. we are. I agree with you. Tom Steyer, it's been great talking with you, sir. I, I wish you the very best. Thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Tom Steyer, TomSteyer.com is his website. He's running for president. At Tom Steyer, by the way, is the Twitter handle. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It's not something that just magically happens. It takes all of us, and that includes you. So please get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.